Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Neil Patel, clinical lead at the West of Scotland Innovation Hub and clinical innovation director and consultant neonatologist at the Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow. In this first episode of a two-part series, I'm delighted to be chatting to Neil. After studying for his undergraduate degree in physiologic sciences at the University of Oxford, graduating with a first-class degree, Neil went on to gain his medical degrees from the University of Edinburgh, graduating with honours and later his doctorate of medicine at that same very fine institution. As well as his current roles that I mentioned in my introduction, Neil is Honorary Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Glasgow, Visiting Professor at the University of Strathclyde, and a Senior Research Fellow for NHS Research Scotland. He's also Clinical Lead at the Scottish Women's and Children's Innovation Consortium. And if if that wasn't enough, Neil leads grant-funded research collaborations with local and international partners across Europe and North America. Neil's interests, which he says often overlap, are technology-related innovation for women and children's health, family-integrated neonatal care, and neonatal hemodynamics and advanced cardiac imaging. Neil is specialized in the critical care management of newborns, extracorporeal life support, and the management of infants and children who have congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Despite all of this, Neil somehow has some spare time, in which he tells me he can demonstrate heart function through the medium of dance. I have to, I'll be explaining how I I met Neil, but there's so much to unpack that we've really got to get going. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Neil Patel. What a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's an absolute pleasure to be joining you on the podcast and really looking forward to, to chatting to you more. Thank you for the very lengthy introduction. <laughs> lengthy, my dear chap. It was edited down where, as I was reading all about you. It's like, oh my God, I could talk about this guy for hours and all the things you've done. And, and innovation, as I'm going to say, is, is, is my thing. I love it and I love people who feel the same way. But first, I've got to ask you about my final comment. Demonstrating heart function through the medium of dance. Really, look, I know this is a podcast and the audience can't see you. But, you know, you're an innovative chap. Please explain. <laughs> yeah, I think we should all be thankful that nobody can see me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. This is the thing that maybe I've become most famous for. But uh, if it, if it, may, it certainly makes me smile if nobody else. I think it's because, as you mentioned, one of my areas of interest is around heart function in, in uh, newborn babies and neonates. And really trying to get to the detail of how the heart functions or doesn't function in different conditions. And uh, whenever I've been asked to try and explain that to, to colleagues or, or, or students, then actually it becomes a bit easier to try and make it physical. So I wouldn't call it a dance as such, but we, we found a way of trying to show how the right ventricle and the left ventricle work or don't work together in different situations. And now I get asked to do it <laughs> quite a lot, but it always, uh, it always gets a laugh. So, uh, yeah, and I, I hope and maybe on another occasion I can show you physically what it looks like. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm harking back to my medical school days and we did a lot of sort of amateur theatricals and like humorous stuff. And I know that we did a sketch all about cardiac function 
and it involved a group of medical students all doing strange maneuvers and it was <laughs> it was it was very very fun i will probably maybe you guys did it long before i ever even tried to <laughs> well, i'm a few years older but but anyway let, 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 let's go into your your role in medicine what, what what got you into medicine and specifically into neonatology yeah i think it, well when, when i think like all of us when you make a decision to study medicine you're you're still pretty early age and I'm not sure that you put a huge amount of thought into it. it, it it's, sometimes you more fall into certain directions. And um, we certainly have a lot of doctors in our family. So I suppose I thought, thought I had some understanding of what it might involve. But uh, I think as you have lived experience, you realize that it's quite different. I suppose what, what always has attracted me and what continues to do is the, from a scientific background, it's just such so many unanswered questions for us still to try and get our heads around. And the breadth of opportunity within medicine to follow your own personal interests, but be guided by the people you meet, both as colleagues and as patients, towards addressing new challenges all the time. So there's that constant mental stimulation. From a neonatal perspective, having, like everybody else, done uh, internships or house jobs um, in, in medicine and surgery and adult, adult specialties, I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time in pediatrics. And on reflection, I realized that's the part of medicine that I really enjoyed. I wasn't one of these people who knew from the first day they entered medical school that they wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I really wasn't sure which area was going to interest me. But through, I suppose, happy chance, I had this exposure to pediatrics, to the patients we meet there, and to the colleagues that, that I met. And I realized that's the area that interested me from an intellectual point of view, but more than that, just where I felt my personality fitted. And within pediatrics, as I started to train, uh, having never really thought about neonatology, the, the first opportunity that I had to spend in neonatology, again, just really struck a chord for me. I, I, I developed a huge respect for, for the teams that I work with, both senior medical colleagues, but also nursing colleagues, really fascinated by the, the patients and, the, and the, the families that I met and the conditions that we were trying to, to help treat for them. And I also was, I suppose, what appealed to me was the technological aspects of the specialty. You know, neonatology is a relatively, it's a bit of a, of a, of a you know, a relatively young specialty which has developed over the past 50, 60 years, I would say, mainly based on technological improvement and uh, new kit that helps us to support babies. And I suppose, certainly for me early in my career, that was a, a, was a big appeal, you know, the opportunity to get my hands on that and to turn knobs and twist dials and interpret numbers and hope that that was helping us to get a better outcome for, for babies. It's it's. It's profoundly fascinating work and, and probably one of the most emotionally connecting areas of our profession. Yeah. You know, a number of years ago, I was I was very humbled to be asked to help a pediatric surgical colleague in Washington, D.C., where I was working, to operate on monozygotic twins to fix their diaphra diaphragmatic hernias laparoscopically, mm. um, which was, you know, one of my areas of interest. And I know that diaphragmatic hernia is one of your interests, and you've published widely on it. Incidentally, we did publish these the, these two operations as a case study, if you will, kind of kind of cool. Please t tell folks who may not know about this condition, and, and although most of our audience are in the profession, 
many are not so but sort of interested citizen scientists so please tell us about the condition and some of the research that you've been doing recently yeah sure um it's i think like all of us we develop obsessions in specific areas and diaphragmatic hernia has certainly become one of mine as the name describes the primary problem that was first recognized anatomically you know many hundreds of years ago is that these babies have failure of development of their diaphragm usually on one side but sometimes on both sides very occasionally and associated with that in in fetal life the abdominal organs are displaced into the chest so typically the bowel occasionally the liver spleen and associated with that there is abnormal development of the lungs and increasingly we appreciate also abnormal development of the heart and the circulation and that's I think why these are are really both challenging and and very interesting patient group to treat for me personally because this is not just a surgical problem yes the the operation to to repair the, the the hole in the diaphragm and to reduce the abdominal contents back into the abdominal cavity is is a key part of the the therapy of these patients and so we really rely on those skills that you described Jonathan that, that you and your colleagues um, have but what we've come to realize as neonatologists and intensivists is that a big part of the challenge for these babies is their cardiorespiratory management and their cardiorespiratory transition at birth, which is severely disrupted and ongoing through the early neonatal period. And it's a condition that sadly is still associated with significant mortality, about 15%, even higher in, in some areas of babies will not survive through the neonatal period with diaphragmatic hernia. And that really is the call to action for many of us, both to improve survival, but also to improve outcomes, long-term outcomes for survivors. And the, the big area that has, has interested me that kind of came to through through serendipity really was an interest in, in the heart function and the pulmonary circulation in these babies, because we know that pulmonary hypertension and ventricular dysfunction are now important determinants of their their early transition and their early survival. So that's increasingly focusing our attention on how we can support the heart in those first few hours and days of life and optimize its function and hopefully improve outcome for these babies. And what, what's been you know really rewarding aspect of, of, of being involved in their care and research in this area is because of the of, of it being a relatively rare condition is a really strong relationship that you build with other centers who are looking after these babies across the world because we have to collaborate to research and improve outcomes but also the collaboration with patients themselves and their families who you know work really closely with us through local and national international parent associations and, and patient associations so it's been one of the huge highlights of my career so far to to have the privilege of, of, of being involved in the care of these babies and their families. And we just hope that we can continue to, to move the needle and uh, improve outcomes for them. But uh, really fantastic group. And I think the other thing that it exemplify really is they're a condition that absolutely needs multidisciplinary input, you know. From from a clinical expertise perspective, you know, it, it's intensivists, it's surgeons, it's cardiologists, it's radiologists, it's fetal medicine specialists, all our allied health colleagues with all the expertise they bring. And it's about understanding the lifelong continuum for these patients from fetal life all the way through to adulthood. So l- lots of work for us and lots more to do. Mm, it's fascinating. So... 
I said in my intro that I love the role that innovation can play in medicine. And in fact, we're speaking today because I reached out to you after seeing an interview on television that you did. And I was so impressed by your passion for the topic. You're currently clinical lead of the National Scottish Women's and Children's Health Innovation Consortium. Tell us about the consortium, its overall aims, your role. Have at it. Sure. Thanks very much, Jonathan. So, um, yeah, my interest in innovation, I suppose it stems from the, the same approach that we take with diaphragmatic hernia. We just want to make things better for our, for our patients from the point of view of their outcomes, but also their experience and, of course, for our colleagues. And that's what really got me interested in working with people who can help us, help us solve the problems that we have. You know, we have hopefully clinical expertise, but we're not technologists necessarily. We're not, we don't have the training to apply design approaches to, to properly, you know, come up with the best, most impactful solutions. And that's what led me to early on connect with different colleagues, both from academia and from industry to try and help share the problems we have and, and solve them with them. And having done that successfully in our own unit, in our own uh, setting, we really wanted to scale it and to see how can we start to do this from a national perspective and how can we engage support uh, both from Scottish government and, and national funders around this. And fortunately, we, we have a really strong focus on innovation within our chief scientists office here in Scotland. They've been very thoughtful about the approach to how we identify key clinical challenges and then how we share them with people who can help to solve them and put some resource around that. And it's very much using the open innovation approach or what in the past has, has been called small business research initiative, where we launch a competition around a specific challenge. And the chief scientist's office have identified some key areas for innovation challenges within health in Scotland. Um, many of those won't be a surprise to you. Early cancer diagnostics, improving mental health, um, reducing drug deaths, which, of course, is a, is a huge issue globally, but very much one that's relevant here in Scotland as well. And from my background, obviously, within neonatology and paediatrics and perinatal health, we were really keen to fly the flag for women's and children's health and to make sure that the, some innovation challenge support could be put in that area. And that's really what led to us bringing together a, a group of colleagues with, with, with that same interest and forming this, this national consortium uh, with the support of the Chief Scientist Office here in Scotland. And for me, one of the key things about this is, you know, we all have our ideas about what the priorities are, what problems we should try to be solve. And we, you can put a, a, a group of, you know, experienced senior heads in a room and ask them to come up with those priorities. But the challenge is how do we engage our colleagues at the front line to help them to come forward with the priorities that they want to solve and then support them to solve those challenges with innovators, with, with industry partners, with small and medium enterprises, with academic partners. And for me, that was a big part of this work. So we, we put a lot of time into, first of all, just sharing this concept of what is innovation? What do we mean by, by pr solving problems? And also helping to reassure colleagues that it's good to work with partners and in industry to do this. I think sometimes, particularly in our public health services, we have a little bit of a reticence and a guarded approach to working with commercial and industry partners. But the modern innovation approach is really one which flips that and which says we can't solve these problems ourselves. We absolutely need to work with 
the people who have the right skills and ideas and industry and help them to develop a solution that will work for us, but also that they can commercialize in the future for the success of our economy. So that's the approach we took. We, we really helped to try and socialize that concept. And then we put out a call to colleagues across Scotland to say, come forward with your challenges. What are the problems you want to solve that you want to apply this approach to? And we had a great response. We had uh, nearly 25 really engaged clinical teams across Scotland who came forward with proposals. And the challenge for us was really then trying to identify that the, the, the priority ones to support. And I'm really delighted to say that we have three innovation challenges now going live. We launched a challenge to seek uh, technologies to support menopause care in women's health. And that is being run with a innovation delivery partner, CivTech, in Scottish government. And that's well in progress now this year already. And we have two other challenges, one in neonatal care, which is around how we can test babies who have jaundice, which is a very, very common problem in their home environment. So how do we develop point of care technologies to do that? And we hope that will revolutionize pathways of care for these babies. And another challenge that will be led with colleagues through in, in Edinburgh around pediatric asthma management and how can we use technology to identify those children who are really at greatest risk of exacerbations in asthma and use that technology to hopefully um, intervene early to, to, to prevent them having severe exacerbation and admissions. So it's a really exciting approach for us and we're really interested to see which problem solvers come forward to help us find the right solutions to these and hopefully on the success of that to run lots more challenges in the future. So th thank you very much for that. That was um, absolutely fascinating approach. And the TV interview that I referenced, you talked about a new incubator, uh, the Mum Incubator. Tell our audience about the technology and how you got involved. Yeah, this has been a really interesting project for us and, and, a, and a great collaboration with Mum Incubators and in particular James Roberts, who is the original founder of Mum. And our story with mom and our journey with them really started early on in, in, in their pro progress um, and it, it started with a colleague of mine a really fantastic colleague Polly Kenyon who is a trainee in our department Polly had just returned from some training in Uganda and sub-Saharan Africa where she was passionate about uh, supporting newborn care and pediatric care there and she, she spoke to myself and, and one of my neonatal colleagues, Helen McDevitt, who's also really interested in, in innovative approaches to care, and explained that, that she'd like to work with more problem solvers who could help develop technologies for those lower resource settings. And she identified that one of the really basic challenges for, for babies born in uh, low and middle income countries was actually thermal regulation. You know, it's a, it's a simple but really fundamental aspect of neonatal care, which is that we have to keep babies warm. And we know that if you don't, they're at significant risk of early neonatal disease and of death, sadly. So that led us to, to look to see who was working in this space, who was trying to, to develop solutions to keep babies warm. And that's how we came across James, who had developed this concept of a portable, low-cost, low-maintenance incubator during his final year as a product design student. And he had really done a great job at developing this concept, so much so that he'd won the Dyson Award at that time. 
so we got in touch with James and said, look, we're really interested in this from a clinical perspective. We'd love to support your your work and your development of this. And that started really uh, an ongoing collaboration with, with James and with Mom as the company has grown. And we were really delighted through a number of years of kind of co-design and James bringing prototypes up to our unit and getting all of our staff, especially our nursing staff, to provide feedback for him that uh, he was able to work towards a final design product, which was signed off with full medical device regulation last year and is now in use in environments, both in terms of Ukraine and in sub-Saharan Africa, where it's being used to support those babies, those ones that Polly had seen a few years ago. And we were involved not just in the co-design, but also in the clinical trial of the final device. We're one of three centers in the UK who supported that. And we're now actually exploring how we can use this device that helps to keep babies warm and maintain their temperature outside the neonatal intensive care unit in developed settings, in our own NHS settings. And we have a pilot with our labor ward at the moment to uh, use the device to keep babies with their mums soon after birth so that if they have problems with temperature regulation, they don't need to be admitted to the neonatal unit. And that has important clinical implications, but also capacity implications. You know, it helps us to keep our beds free in the intensive care unit for babies who really need an, an intensive care. So it's been a really great uh, collaboration and partnership, and we've been delighted to see MomGrow as a company. And it's really helped us to understand the value, as I mentioned before, of of that approach of working with industry to to solve the problems we have and to do it in in innovative and new ways. So, Neil, using the Mum Incubator as an example, how does one go about crossing the valley of doom with innovations in healthcare? Wow, that's a million-dollar question, I think, isn't it? I mean, and I think we all recognise there is this this valley of doom where you know you've developed a successful, what you believe to be a successful solution, and you've hopefully done some some great evaluation locally to to, to show the impact and the benefits. But then the question is, how do you get to that point of scaling and adoption and implementation? And I I would say that there there are probably two big aspects of that one is actually who's going to pay for it who wants to pick up the bill to actually take on an, an, a new way of doing things or or new digital solution whatever it might be and that the other is the, the culture change associated with that and the transformation and as we all know in very busy environments especially healthcare settings any change in practice even if there are significant positives associated with it is is, is going to be challenging and I think that's where a different skill set is required. First of all, uh, from the point of view of engaging funders and support for it, it there's a Im- important role for being able to understand how money flows in these systems and where the opportunities are and connecting with the, the processes at a national level or within your organization um, and understanding the timings around that as well, around those conversations. And, and what the important metrics are. And I think as clinicians, we are very focused on clinical outcomes, but we have to live in the real world and understand that those colleagues who are running our organizations and our services may have additional priorities, including addressing waiting lists, the bottom line of the organization, staff retention and attraction, which increasingly are global issues. So we have to be able to couch 
the benefits of our solution in, in, in the, the terms that are really going to appeal to, to that audience and, and the ones who control the purse strings as well. But then in terms of broader implementation, I mean, again, I think some of the things that I've slowly learned and, and have become clearer to me are we've got to take our colleagues on the journey. There's no point um, a few people developing a niche solution and then just expecting that our, our friends and our colleagues will, will instantly see the benefits and adopt it with us. And that goes back to perhaps what I was talking about with our approach for women's and children's innovation nationally here in Scotland, where we put a lot of time into engaging colleagues right at the beginning in developing the problem statement, you know, because we hope and, and believe from experience that if we've done that and they're, they're on the journey with us, that w- then when it comes to implementation, they're already aware that the solution has been in progress and they're ready and waiting for it to, to, for it to come into practice. And I think that, that, that hopefully that approach means that we will get um, faster and broader um, adoption. And certainly there are other projects we've been involved with and that we might come on to shortly, Jonathan, where that approach has also worked really nicely for us. I think for those colleagues who are involved at a national level in terms of supporting innovation, it's something that needs a bit of thought to understand how you make high-level decisions about the priorities and supporting which areas we want to support innovation in, but doing it in a way that doesn't look very top-down. My experience is that that having that grassroots engagement and support for what we're trying to do is critical. So you've got to create the opportunities and then support people along them rather than just trying to impose a, a, a late stage solution on them that that's kind of the, the the approach we've tried to take i think you're bang on target there one of my operating principles is any innovation has to make it cannot disrupt workflow it has to improve workflow nowadays it, it has to deliver at least the same quality preferably better quality care at lower price it has to Uh, reduce the amount of time people take to do things. And it has to be what I call NPDPIP, nurse proof, doctor proof, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, I totally agree. And my my simple kind of rule of thumb for myself these days is, you know, does it improve outcome? Okay, that's something we're always all focused on for the patient and and their their, their function and their health and and their longevity. But does it improve patient experience? Does it improve staff experience? And does it add value? Value both economically, but also importantly now, value environmentally as well. So if, if you can tick off all or most of those, then then hopefully we shall have a winner. Yeah. And then, of course, you're dealing with one of the most inertia-bound professions on the planet. We don't like change. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Neil Patel. And I look forward to discussing more on this topic next week. So folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode and like us on social media and listen to the archives. To hear more from Neil, please listen to our next episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sack here and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.